I'm here with Roma Battaglia and Jane Vaughn and Ella Hutcherson. Uh, good morning, everybody. Good Hello. morning. Um, so, uh, Ella, we're going to start with you. Um, you uh, wrote a great story this week that was focused on legal issues around public meeting agendas. Uh, it's a topic that's not super flashy, uh, the humble public meeting agenda, but it is important with helping people understand the decisions that their local elected officials make every day. So what led you to pursue this story in the first place? Well, in the JPR newsroom, part of our job each day kind of involves going through these different public meetings that are being held in our area to see if any important decisions are going to be made or any important matters are going to be discussed. But sometimes when we're looking at these public meetings notices, it's really hard to garner any information about what a meeting is actually going to be about. So, for example, in Curry County, we were seeing these public notices for a while that would just say, on this date, at this time, in this location, the Board of Commissioners and the Director of County Operations will have a meeting. The public is welcome to attend. And that does not give the public a lot to go off of. And right. I spoke with the Director of County Operations about these meetings notices, and he said, yes, these notices are a mistake. I'm aware that they do nothing to serve the public, and I'm working to fix it. Right. Not a lot of information available in that meeting agenda. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, yeah, so this is something that we local reporters uh, see from time to time. Um, and sometimes public meetings do list topics, but they're hard to understand what's actually being discussed, even from people like us who look at these agendas multiple times a week and try to keep up with local issues. Right. And I also spoke with Melissa Hopkins, and she's an attorney who currently is working on a case in Yamhill County that involves public meetings law. And I showed her the types of notices that we were seeing in Curry County, and she points to Oregon Public's me public meetings law, which states that public notice should include the time, place, and a list of principal subjects to be considered at a meeting. And that list of principal subjects is what was missing. And that's, I think, the heart of Oregon public meeting law, right? Is that you should know what your governing body is doing, right? Shouldn't have to submit a public records request to see what's going on behind closed doors. And it's also worth noting that Curry County has posted public notices for these meetings that do have a list of topics a few times. And when they do, they also list the very law that states that public meetings have to include that list of principal subjects. Hmm. So if it seems like a governing body might be violating one of these public meetings laws and isn't providing adequate information to let the public know what they're doing, and someone wants to do something about that to hold their uh, local government accountable, what are their options to do that? So that's the problem that I ran into while exploring this issue. Right now in Oregon, there is no state agency that enforces most of the public meetings laws. The Oregon Government Ethics Commission currently has jurisdiction over executive session, which is the part of a meeting that is closed to the public, but that's it. So if someone wants to hold a public official accountable for wrongdoing as it relates to public meetings law outside of executive session, their only option is to file a lawsuit, which is not something that most people are just able to do at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the state does not require any type of training in public meetings law for people on governing bodies. So it isn't that these violations are necessarily malicious. It's very possible that they're coming from a knowledge gap about these laws. I spoke with Jamie Pierce, who is general counsel for the League of Oregon Cities, which currently offers public meetings law training for city officials. When you become elected um, on city council, there's no guidebook. Right? There's no prerequisite to become a city councilor as far as classes you have to take or knowledge that you have to have about these different laws that now suddenly apply to you. 
But the good news is, is that the Oregon State Legislature recently passed amendments and additions to public meetings law that address some of these issues. Hmm. So with this new legislation or this new law, what's going to change? So public meetings law is being updated and toughened in a few important ways by this legislation. It defines what it means for a governing body to come together to decide on a public matter to include electronic communication like video calls, phone calls, email chains, that kind of thing, as well as using an intermediary person to communicate. It creates a training requirement for anyone on a governing body with expenditures over $1 million per fiscal year, which includes the vast majority of public bodies in Oregon. And it creates a system of accountability for when violations do occur. So if a member of the public spots what they think is a violation, they'll be able to file a complaint with the public body itself. And that public body then has to respond with a remedy to the violation or by denying that there was a violation. And if a citizen is not happy with the answer they receive, they can then file a complaint with the Oregon Government Ethics Commission. And depending on the commission's findings, they can issue what is essentially a warning to the person who committed the violation, or they can hold them personally, financially liable for that violation. Gotcha. So a lot more tools to create accountability Mm -hmm. related to public meetings law. So when is this all going to go into effect? So this goes into effect September 24th, but it will be fully implemented by the beginning of 2024. And that gives public bodies time to get their staff trained up and for those trainings to be developed and to be refined. I spoke with Representative Nathan Sosa, one of the chief sponsors of the bill, about its upcoming impacts. Public officials are now going to really be held accountable for following the public meetings laws, and there are going to be real consequences if they don't. And he says that he hopes that the training requirement will prevent violations kind of in and of itself. But when violations do occur, he's happy to know that citizens will now have a way to kind of hold their public officials accountable. Great. Thanks, Ella. Thank you. Uh, Roman, we're going to turn to you now. Um, So you've been following a bill in the California legislature that would ban hand counting ballots in elections. So what would this bill do exactly and why are lawmakers considering it right now? Yeah, so essentially this bill um, called AB 969 would essentially do, like you said, it would ban hand counting ballots in most elections in the state. So in any scheduled elections with more than 1,000 registered voters, you can't hand count and any special elections with more than 5,000 registered voters. So basically this is banning hand counting in you know, most elections in the county, Alpine County is the only county with less than 1,000 registered voters, so they could still hand count if they want to, but in small local elections. But it would basically force counties to use state-certified voting systems, which is how most places, nearly every county in the state does it anyways, using these state-certified voting systems. So it's not like this is forcing people to change their ways necessarily. Um, and the rules would be relaxed in the case of natural disasters or emergencies, say if the power is out and you can't use a, you know, an electronic scanner or something. Um, but this bill was introduced basically targeted at Shasta County in Northern Mm -hmm. California, where the far right majority of supervisors on the board there have been trying to start hand counting ballots again. So they haven't done hand counting in a major way since 1972. It's been decades since they've done this. And, you know, since then, hand counting has been found to be less accurate, more expensive, and more time consuming than using machines to count them. Mm -hmm. Um, I was there during a test in Reading where they were testing this hand counting system as they're preparing, and it took them 19 19 staff, six hours to count 500 ballots, which is something a machine could do in 
pretty much a few minutes. So it's going to take a long time to count ballots. It's also going to cost them millions of extra dollars to hire the staff needed to count the ballots every major election. So that's more expensive. And, you know, there have been studies about hand counting in Wisconsin and New Hampshire that have showed that, you know, just machines are just more accurate than hand counting ballots. When you're doing it by hand, you're just doing a lot of repetitive tasks. And when I was talking with the people in Reading, they were getting tired after just a few hours of counting these ballots and already making mistakes. So, wow. yeah. Yeah, this is the latest wrinkle in this whole elections drama that's been happening in Shasta County for, it seems like, years now. Yeah. So w what have leaders in Shasta County said about this new bill that's targeting them? Yeah, so I talked to a couple of people and two county supervisors about this bill. Um, there were two who were against hand counting in the first place. They're in the minority, and the three others voted for hand counting. Um, everyone on the Shasta County Board of Supervisors are Republicans, but they some are more moderate than others or have different opinions about this. Um, Mary Ricker, one of the supervisors who's against this, said she doesn't like the state stepping in on this stuff, even though she doesn't support hand counting. And I've actually had calls from county supervisors in other counties concerned about this. And so I do think that this was a way that the state of California was able to step in and say, wait a minute, we're not going to, we're not going to have more counties do this because this is really not following what the state requires of what an elections office should do for their, their various elections. Yeah, she told me that she's had a lot of different counties all around her and around the state that have been considering this hand counting stuff. And so I think it sounds like from her and from Tim Garman, who I also talked to, it sounds like that the state is kind of concerned that this hand counting stuff is going to spread and other counties are going to try and do this. So they're trying to like nip this before it gets too out of control. Um, I know that other counties in other parts of the country have also denied hand counting because they've seen the financial costs of it. Uh, Maricopa, no, I think it's, yeah, it's a county in Arizona recently denied going forward with hand counting because they saw it was going to cost millions of dollars. And so I think that some people are starting to see those costs. I tried reaching out to some of the supervisors on the other side of the conversation, but they all declined to talk to me. I even went to the board chair, Patrick Jones's gun store in Reading, like I've done before, and he wasn't there that time. So I wasn't able to talk with him. But I also talked with the county clerk, Kathy Darling-Allen, who runs the elections in Shasta County. She supports this bill. She even spoke out about it in support of it during an elections committee meeting on Thursday morning. And she's, you know, always been against hand counting ballots. Right. And that's the person who's running the elections yeah. there in Chester County. So um, what's the status of this bill in the in the California legislature? Yeah. So right now it's on the assembly floor there, the bigger house. Um, I literally have the live stream up right now. They're going to start any time now. And so it could theoretically be passed today. But um, I talked with a staffer in the legislature who said they're hoping it gets passed today or Monday. Um, it's already passed in the assembly with a huge majority of support. That's where it was introduced. And so it's back there now after it was amended in the Senate. Um, the legislature convenes through next Thursday. So that's the last day, theoretically, the bill could be passed. Um, and then the governor would have until October 14th to sign the bill. It would take effect immediately because it has a urgency clause because the bill sponsor wants to make sure that they'd be ready to go um, to prepare for major elections, the presidential primary in March. Um, and so, you know, that means that the election that Shasta County had planned to hand count in November, a smaller early um, November election would have to change and they'd have to use their machines to count the ballots. Okay. Thanks, Roman. Um, we'll have a story from you, I'm sure, in the coming days yep. or day maybe about this once there's a resolution with it. 
Um, Jane, we're going to turn to you now. Um, you covered a story this week about a Medford-based uh, harm reduction nonprofit that has kind of a colorful name. It's called Stabbin' Wagon. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on track to get a big grant from the Oregon Health Authority. First off, who is this group and what is this grant all about? So Stab and Wagon, as you said, is based in Medford, and they're a drug and alcohol harm reduction group. So, for example, they provide supplies for safer drug consumption. They do peer-based mental health support and support groups, community events, HIV testing, and basically are trying to address some drug use and mental health issues in the community. Um, They're really focused more on being community-oriented rather than top-down, so their staff are trained in crisis response. Um, They have experienced mental health crises themselves and experienced homelessness and navigated the mental health system, so there's kind of that peer-to-peer component. Um, I will say that they have at times clashed with with law enforcement. Uh, a couple of their employees have recently be, been arrested, and they've been pretty outspoken against the, the police and law enforcement in general. Um, but they are on track right now to get a $1.5 million grant from the Oregon Health Authority, wow. um, which I should say is not finalized. Uh, Stab and Wagon has signed it and sent it to OHA, and OHA says they're still working on the terms of the contract. That's a lot of money. What mm-hmm. are they planning to use it for? They're going to create a community-based mental health center, which they're calling a respite center. So that'll be low barrier center. It'll be somewhere in Jackson County, not sure where yet. Um, It'll be peer run. It's for people who have mental illness or trauma or are experiencing emotional distress or crisis. Um, It would house four to six people uh, up to two weeks free of charge. And it's basically a short-term non-clinical alternative to psychiatric hospitalization. So it's going to be non-coercive, so people who want to be there you know, won't be forced, and they'll have some sort of outreach coordinators focusing on community outreach to get people there who might benefit from that sort of um, environment. Mm-hmm. And then the, the grant would fund the center for two years, and then beyond that, they'd have to look for other funding. Okay, so um, this is not fully resolved yet, mm-hmm. like you said. So what will you be watching for next? We'll have to see. OHA says they don't have a timeline for when the contract will be completed. Stab and Wagon says they've budgeted for six months to set up before they open whenever that contract is signed. So I'll be following that. Okay. Thanks, Jane. Thanks. Um, so before we go, we've got a, some sad news to <laughs> announce. Um, our intern, Ella Hutcherson, has been with us this summer as part of the Charles Snowden program. That's an internship for early career journalists in Oregon. And this is her last day. Oh. Um, so she'll be moving on. Um, so Ella, how are you feeling uh, now that it's your last day here with Jefferson Public Radio? It's bittersweet, for sure. <laughs> I'm going to miss the newsroom. Um Anything that you think you've learned uh, since you've been here? Oh, I've (laughs) learned so much. I must have learned something. Oh, I've learned so much about how to tell audio stories and how to work fast and work in a team. It's been wonderful. Okay, great. Well, we're really going to miss you, Ella. Mm -hmm. I'll Um, miss you, too. um, So that's going to do it for the debrief this week. Thanks for listening. You can reach the newsroom with comments about our coverage on our website at ijpr.org. You can find this program and more on our website at jeffexchange.org or subscribe uh, on Apple, Spotify, and any of the other platforms. 